Our text is in Luke, and it's very brief. I'll read Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to apply these words to our minds that we would embrace them, accept them, apply them. We thank you, Father, for the simplicity of the truth of your word and for its ability to change our lives and make them so much more peaceful. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to make us, your children, make us obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We um, officers meet once a month or try to fairly regularly. We've been going through a book called Self-Confrontation and the most recent chapter uh, addressed forgiveness and actually I believe it was part one of two and uh, it reminded me that eight years ago I preached on this very text and it's and I preached on it because it really I think needed to be uh, shared and I wouldn't say the same thing now but I'll let you be the judges of that Um, the title is boring Uh, Biblical Forgiveness Defined. Um, I think another interesting title would be uh, Forgiveness FAQ, F-A-Q. That would be really with it, the modern era. And uh, I think another one that is maybe appropriate is forgiveness in 14 words, because that's what I just read to you. I read you only 14 words out of the Bible, verse 3. And that's really what will exegete. Verse 4 exists merely as an application within the sermon. The process of forgiveness. Now, this is a congregational participation portion of our worship service. So, please free your hands from anything that you're holding. I like how Trevor... Okay, show me your hands are free. Free your hands. Okay. Take your right hand, put it up in front of you like this like you're going to karate chop something. Then take your left hand and push your right hand. Hit it. Hit it. If your brother sins against you, that's a sin. If your brother sins against you, come back gently with your right hand. Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Not all of us are participants in this, I have to admit, but that's fine. I think you get the gist of it. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That concludes one of four points in this sermon. (laughs) So the sermon's going to take about 14 minutes. You wish. So that's the first point of our sermon, the process of forgiveness. I just described it to you, and I believe the hand gestures can be very helpful in allowing you to remember it, memorize it. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There are 
process failures, however. This process is simple that I described. It's only 14 words. How hard can it be? It can be very hard, as we all know. We learn the most through failure, and I think all of us have failed, whether you are this person or whether you are this person. We've all failed to do this properly. And so let me share with you some failures. So point two of the sermon is common process failures in this process of forgiveness. First, your brother sins against you. What have I done? Your brother sins against you. Yeah. That is and can be a good thing if you can just let it go. But what I'm showing here is that you're turning the shoulder to them. You're now not treating them as your brother. You're not treating them like they're in the family. You're not treating them like you ought. So you give them the silent treatment. Wives have a reputation for doing this to their husbands, and yet I believe we husbands can do it as well. We all can do it with one another. When we are offended by someone, we may choose that response, and it's not a biblical response. So, if your brother sins against you, you're not to do that. Another one is this. If your brother sins against you, that's a common response. What is that called? Retaliation in kind. Back in the 80s, between the Soviets and the Americans, we referred to it as mutually assured destruction. You set up your enemy bases, and you go on the attack. That's not going to happen to me again, because... I'm going to hit you first next time. So see, that's not a proper response. Just because I comment on it doesn't mean that it's right. So that, and then that happens. Wrong. Another failure of the process. The last one is your brother sins against you. You rebuke them. You rebuke them good but you're really not prepared to follow through with the process. You don't really want the process to succeed. You're doing it because you're supposed to, but your heart's not in it. And so it typically reflects in your attitude and your actions. The other person understands this. You've now upset them. They may not have known that they offended you by what they did, but now they know, and you've offended them back. So these are three process failures that occur with this step. This is to be a step that's gentle. You're to rebuke them. It's not harsh. And yet I just described three failures to do that. So the second one, your brother sins against you, you rebuke them. And then nothing happens. This does not happen. There could be on the part of the person who brought the offense to you, a refusal to accept the fact that they offended you. They think you should just be an adult about this. You're so sensitive. So they're trying to say, I owe you nothing. You're the one that has the problem, not me. 
So this is a failure on the part of the person who brought the offense to recognize that they're not you. Your sensitivities are obviously different than their sensitivities. And they think you should get tough. This is common in our society. This is a common way that people respond to criticism. You ought not be so sensitive. Another one. So, none of this. But instead, they say, it was not that big of a deal. This is a variant of the first one, but here they're kind of admitting that there is the potential for you to take it that way, but you really are misinterpreting this. It's not that big of a deal. And so this one, it's really not their choice. It's not, the, it's not this person's choice as to determine what is or is not a big enough deal for you to respond with a rebuke. It hurts you. You should be free to share that with them, and they should accept it. They should not deny it. Another one is blame-shifting, minimizing. Well, I only did it because. And so now they're essentially blaming you for what they themselves did. You are at fault. You brought it on yourself. So that absolves me. I, I don't have to do this. No, 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 I don't have to do this. Because you deserved it. So these are three failures of the refusal to repent. Now, we know that this refusal to repent is common. And it results in Matthew 18 in what we call the, the escalation procedures. And we'll cover that in a bit. So we've covered a failure to do this. We've covered a failure to do this. But now these have happened. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, and now the process breaks again because this doesn't happen. Why? Why? Why won't that happen? For a variety of reasons. This is done, but not to this person's satisfaction. There is insufficient groveling perhaps, in this. There is something deficient. There must be more. You don't mean it. If you meant it, you would do this or this or this or this or this. So now this person is defining exactly what this means. But it's not their prerogative to do that. That's this. Now this person may be doing it badly. But if they're doing it, and it is heartfelt, if it is sincere, then this must come. So, now, let's say that this did happen. So, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So, we've got past that initial point of forgiveness. But, they keep bringing it up again and again and again. You did this, you did this, you did this. You forgave me for that. See, this is a breakdown of the process. Forgiveness means that it's gone. With God, that's what it means. With we people, we sometimes don't 
go that far. Another one is that this person, because they've done this, now you owe them. So they'll keep rubbing your nose in the fact that they're the bigger person. I forgave you. And again, that's going too far. That's not what God would have us to do. So what I've shared with you is the process and common breakdowns of the process. We're halfway through. Can you believe it? Two of four points. Where are we at? We're screaming along. Okay. Now, however, we come into the forgiveness fact portion of our sermon. And our frequently asked questions. Now, those of you, nearly all of us, I'm sure, are familiar with a FAQ, a frequently asked questions list. Now, when these first came out, they were excellent. And yet, marketing got a hold of them. And now, you go looking for a FAQ, and FACs are often just marketing gimmicks. And so, I don't want this to be a marketing gimmick. I'm hoping that these frequently asked questions will be helpful to you. If you're thinking about forgiveness, that's part of the reason I selected the name for this. Biblical forgiveness defined. I want you to be able to refer to this as a resource. Hopefully, these questions will be helpful. Question number one. Must I forgive myself for sins I commit against others? This is common out there. And the answer is no. This is modern, man-centered psychobabble. And so Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So now you know that there is a sorrow then that is entirely man-centered that leads to death, not to restoration, not to forgiveness. The truth is, is that man loves himself so much that he need never forgive himself because he assumes that he's always forgiven of himself. And there are a couple of examples. In Matthew 19, 19, Jesus said this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's summarizing the law. In the Old Testament, you don't read that. You don't read those words that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But that's how Jesus summarized the entire second table of the law. It's about loving people like we naturally love and treat ourselves. Paul said it in Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, that famous section on husbands and wives. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So God knows we love ourselves. And there is no getting around that. Even people that kill themselves, even people that mistreat themselves, love themselves. And some of you, 43 people, were at our house on my favorite day of the year, February 2nd. You all came to watch Groundhog Day with me. Who won the trivia contest that night? Raise your hand. Do you remember? No one won the trivia contest that night. Well, I've, I have to admit, you all did pretty poorly. 
But I know someone won. Nobody remembers who won? Nobody wants to raise their hand. This is the... Who knows? Ah, okay, okay. So we got a, we got a representative here. Okay, so now... There was a line in Groundhog Day where after he's attempted to kill himself for many minutes and failed, he's back in the diner with her and he is telling her the truth. And she's just sitting there like this. And she accuses him of only loving himself. And what does he say? He says, I don't even like myself anymore. That's what he said. And he believes that. I don't even like myself anymore. But he does love himself. Because he went on to prove that with the rest of the movie. So see, we love ourselves. We do not have to forgive ourselves of sins we commit against others. They must forgive us. And yet in our culture right now, this is a big thing. Forgiveness of yourself is a big thing in our culture. What I'm telling you is it's not biblical. Number two, should I forgive others their sins against me for my own benefit? This is kind of tricky. I would say, no, you should not forgive others for your own benefit. But the fact is, if you do live a forgiving life, you will live a healthier life. You receive benefits from forgiving others in your life. You will live with less tension, less anxiety, less anger, less depression, less fatigue, less fantasies about taking vengeance on people that have wronged you. Letting go of grudges is physically good for you. It's been proven over and over again. So that's a health benefit to forgiveness. There is also a spiritual benefit. And let me read you a few phrases from the Bible. Matthew 6, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So you see here, there is a connection between you forgiving others and your Father in heaven forgiving you. Matthew 18, this is, this is just after the escalation procedures. He had told a story about that wealthy man. But his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you from your heart. You do not forgive your brother his trespasses. Mark 11. He says that when you stand praying, and then he goes on to say the same thing. If, if you have something against somebody, you resolve it now. Or God will not forgive you. You must go forgive them at that time. So see, what's interesting is the answer to the question, should I forgive others their sins against me for my own benefit? The answer to the question is no. You are to forgive them because it is a character attribute of God, which we are his children. We are to exhibit that character attribute. But when you do so, you benefit greatly. Question number three. Is forgiveness simple and quick or a long, drawn-out process? Forgiveness can and should be simple and quick. And yet, if you go check out books out of the library, many of them will tell you, oh, no, 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 
It's a long, long process. Why? Because these people make lots of money telling you that it's a long, drawn-out process. There is a book, eight years ago when I preached on this, I cited this book by Edward Hallowell, MD. He wrote the book, Dare to Forgive. A woman came to him. He said she was well-dressed, a 51-year-old woman. She, had, she was a very successful woman. She had formed her own investment firm in Boston. And yet she came to him and said, my mother is dying. I hate my mother. My mother is dying, and I don't know what to do. And this man is an Episcopalian. The only reason I included him in my study is that he was, quote-unquote, religious. But he admits that he does not use his religious beliefs in his counseling. So he admits in this book, and I, I, I called out these quotes, that he went into regular sessions with that woman for years. And yet, her mother died just a few months into the beginning of this relationship. And he never gave her any direction as to how to deal with that. Because, see, that wasn't her problem, in his opinion. Her problem is just how she is managing it. It's not the relationship between her and her mom. Oh, no, 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 that's not the problem at all. The problem is only how it's affecting your ability to live a contented life yourself. Just bad, bad wisdom. And yet, you know, he makes a lot of money from that. So our hard hearts make forgiveness long and drawn out. The process itself is very, very simple. And it ought to be quick. But early on in our marriage, uh, my wife would not let me go to bed after we'd had a fight. Now, we may have had the fight hours earlier, but right as we're about to go to bed, she would bring it up. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, she would say. And I'd think, yes, but we could have talked about this hours ago, not now. And yet, some of the sweetest times were when we're up at one in the morning, Discussing these things, even though I have to get up early and go to work the next day. And so I am very thankful for a wife that forced me to obey the Bible. We are to keep short accounts with one another. You know what that means. We're not to allow these right wrongs that are suffered by one another to be on this ledger that we have in our minds. We must get them off that ledger. Deal with it. You must. Question four. Is forgiveness something I do unilaterally? Now, for you young people who might not know what that word means, unilateral. Una is one. So there's unilateral, bilateral, trilateral, and then however many laterals you want, I guess, after that. But you're talking about the number of parties involved in it. So when we ask... Is forgiveness something I do unilaterally? It means it's affecting only me. I'm the only one engaged in it. Does this process show you that there's only one person engaged in it? Of course not. I'd need only one hand to do that. So forgiveness is a process involving two people or more. But there is a significant aspect of forgiveness that does occur unilaterally. And that is when an offense comes 
But you can deal with it yourself. You can let it go. You cannot hold it against this person that offended you. Proverbs 19.11 says, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a matter. So what that means is that he did not take offense at something when others might have, or he might have at once upon a time. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So the question you ask is, what sins are covered by this? Give me a list. I want to see the list. Everybody wants to see lists. It's really up to this person. If your brother sins against you, the question is, was that sin of such importance to this person that they have to address it? Because if it is of a sufficient importance to where they can't let it go, they can't allow love to cover that sin, they must address it. It's only one of two ways that it goes. So when I say that sin is not unilaterally addressed, that's when it's so severe that it must be handled in this way. But when it's not that severe, when you can just absorb it, and frankly... That is what happens a lot. It's quite common within Christian circles. And this is a beautiful thing. But what people mean when they're saying that forgiveness is unilateral, they're usually meaning that it could be a significant offense. And yet they think it's this person's responsibility to forgive this person without them having any part in it. That is bad. That is unbiblical. And yet you'll find many Christians advocating for that. In some ways, I think they're just misinterpreting something, and I'll clarify that later. But yet some of them really think it, and it's wrong. This, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If, if he repents, forgive him. There's an if there. That if is important. You can't just ignore that. You can't just blow through it. Question five, didn't Jesus and Stephen forgive their killers unilaterally and aren't those big sins after all? Murdering people, I would think, is on the list. That's on the list that doesn't get on the other list. There are two lists. No, this is a common misconception. Let's read both contexts of these. So from Luke 23, starting at verse 33, concerning Jesus and the crucifixion. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Concerning Stephen, it's from Acts 7 at verse 59. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So I ask you, did Jesus or Stephen forgive their murderers who were in the process of murdering them at that moment? No, 
They did not. Who were their words addressed to? The words of Jesus were addressed to his father in heaven. The words of Stephen were addressed to Jesus, who he was looking at in the sky. And when he'd mentioned that he saw Jesus in the sky, these Jews became outraged, ran upon him, stopping their ears, throwing stones at him. So they did not forgive their killers. But what they did is they gave the forgiveness of their killers to God in heaven for later application. It's like laying up in escrow. You kids, again, would not know what escrow is. But it's an account that exists to be a formal transaction between two people. And while it's in process, it's held by some other party. That's what happened with their forgiveness. It was laid up in heaven in escrow, such as to be applied to these people at a future time, should it be something that they repent of. Question six. What about in Mark, where when praying an offense is in mind? And I read this earlier. I alluded to this earlier. When you stand praying, this is from Mark 11.25. Let me turn there. Mark 11.25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive. So this would seem to violate this process. But, again, does it? You are praying, and your conscience has a little alert go off. And God, through your conscience, the Holy Spirit is telling you, Rod, Rod, you're praying to me, but hey, you've got this burden that you need to resolve. So what happened is this. It covers one of two scenarios. One, your brother has done this, and you have chosen not to address it. You thought love could cover it. It's not. It's eating at you. You're annoyed by this. And yet you haven't addressed it in the formal fashion of the process. So you have to do one of two things now. You have to truly let it go and allow it not to affect the love you have with that brother. Or you have to engage in the process. One of the two paths. Question seven. Must I forgive and forget, as the saying goes? No, again, this is a misconception. This is not biblical. There is no requirement for you to forget this that was done to you. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's what God says. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And some people infer that God then has no recollection of that that God then essentially has limited his omniscience to exclude that which have been forgiven. That's silly. What it means is that God chooses not to bring that to remembrance. You know how it happens. You've been there. You've done this. You dwell on it. It eats at you. It's like a cancer. You are upset all over again, all over again, long after this has happened because it's not been resolved. So that is what we are choosing to forget when we've participated in the forgiveness process. 
1 Corinthians 13.5 in the NIV says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. So that's what it means. It's not that it's out of your mind. It's not that you've forget, forgotten it or that you have to forget it. You're, it's not on your ledger. It's not on your list. Now, God may bless you in having you forget it. That would be wonderful. But yet, it's not a prerequisite. When we say forgive and forget, what we really mean is this. And you have to cut people slack in this regard. Maybe they mean this. By saying... I've forgiven you, and that I forget this, it means this. I will not bring that offense up in my mind and meditate on it, develop bad thoughts about you because of it. It's been forgiven. So that's I. Oh, others. I won't bring it up with others. It's been forgiven. I have no right to be gossiping to others about this thing that now is covered by the blood of Christ. I owe. And then you. I will not bring it up with you. I will not bring that sin up to you. It may be in our minds from time to time, but we don't bring it up, especially not to rub someone's nose in it. So think of it as I owe you. That's the forgive and forget. It's I owe you. I don't do it. I don't talk about it with others. I don't talk about it with you. I let it go. Question eight. Must I trust them just as before because I forgave them? Again, no. This is a misconception. This... Trust in a relationship must be restored. If the offense was a betrayal, then this person, even if they forgive them, may not reach the level of trust they had with this person before. May not ever. Especially in a cheating relationship. There has been a significant offense. Cheating this person cheated on this person, cheating, yet it's discovered, it's rebuked, they repent, they're forgiven. Yet now this person wants sometimes the liberty that they used to exercise, the freedom to do their own things, which potentially led to the possibility of the cheating in the first place. Why don't you trust me? You forgave me. You see what they're doing? They're trying to extort Stretch the forgiveness much farther into a restoration of trust in the relationship, much further than it ought to be. Because they want it back. They miss that freedom. Potentially, they want to cheat again. That's the doubt that's in this person's mind. And that's why that, no, no, that's a misconception that just because I forgave them, that I, we must return to what we had before. No, that takes time. Must I forego restitution because I forgave the sin? Someone stole from you. You confront them on it. They repent. They've stole. It was a crime. It was a sin. Now they say, because you forgave them, aha, I don't owe you anything. It's a really a, it's a loophole in forgiveness, right? You can get out of so many earthly responsibilities by just getting someone to say they forgive you. As a matter of fact, there was a law here in Nebraska passed a year or two ago. People jump out of their cars. There's just being an accident. And they run up and say, oh, I'm so sorry. And, of course, lawyers attempted to use that I'm sorry as an admission of guilt. And so there was this I'm sorry law passed. You're allowed to say I'm sorry, and it's not an admission of guilt. I'm sorry, we just had an accident. That's all that they might have been saying. So, question number 10. 
And also, Pastor Kaiser, just a few weeks ago, covered this concerning an elderly woman that was cheated by two young Christian men. Question 10. Must we forgive God for ways in which we've perceived he's hurt us? This is popular out there. Go to Google and type in forgiving God, and you'll see that people are doing this, writing articles about it, writing books about it. Now, some of these writers do clarify that God cannot and does not sin, therefore does not need to be forgiven of this perceived slight. But yet, just the fact that they're indulging in that terminology is wrong. Heretical, sacrilegious, it's wrong. And so we ought not indulge in that. We must correct these people's false perception of God. They are hurt, sure. Circumstances in their life. We know that God controls all things. We know that God could have prevented this, 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 that, and the other. So it is Definitely possible for us to lay the blame for what's occurred in our lives at God's feet. Yet it's wrong. We know that. God needs forgiven for nothing. He's committed no sin. Question 11. If forgiveness is granted so easily, won't it just encourage them to do it again? This seems a reasonable concern, doesn't it? And this is why Paul addressed it extensively in Romans. Now, the book of Romans is very comprehensive because Paul is writing to these Christians. He's never been to their church at the point he's writing this letter. So he has this full-orbed description of the gospel. And forgiveness and grace is certainly one of the central aspects to it. So let me read two excerpts. Romans 3, starting at verse 7. If the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. In other words, the gospel is sufficient to cover all sin everyone or anyone ever committed. And so what the Christians were being accused of, most likely by the Jews, was having a disregard for law, having a disregard for obedience. Cheap grace is the phrase that is used to describe that. So then he covers it a little bit more later in chapter 5, starting at verse 18, and let me read that. Romans chapter 5, 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, Grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Yes, grace is powerful the most powerful tool on earth, yet it was purchased at the highest price 
that can be conceived. And so it's never cheap. It was precious. It remains precious, even though it is abundant and available to all who avail themselves of it. Question question, uh, 12. How can I forgive them for doing the same thing to me over and over? Because God says we must. Jesus anticipated this, and this is where I read to you verse 4. Thus far, everything I kept repeating is only verse 3. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. This seems so unfair. And that's grace. Sin and grace are very unfair. God forgives you over and over and over and over and over again for the very same sins. And if you are unwilling then to do that with others, it's only reflecting your hardness of heart and the fact that you do not understand that of which you've been forgiven. Matthew 18, this is the escalation procedures. Peter came to it right after it. Peter came to him and said, Lord... How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And you can tell he's hopeful. This is enough. He's probably already heard Jesus refer to seven. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Okay, 490, kids. That's big math. 490 times. Make a list. So the 491st time, you're fine with it. No, you don't need to forgive him. You know that's silly, right? You don't have to count up to 490. The fact is you ought not be counting at all. Even Peter counting to seven is not what God would have us doing. We are to keep no account of this. Once it's covered under the blood of Christ as forgiven, let it go. Don't let it eat at you. Last question, question 13. Does this process apply to unbelievers as well? No. There is a different process in the Bible that applies to unbelievers. Now, there are unbelievers who are so enculturated in Christianity that they may be aware of some of this, and they may do some of this, just as there are many Christians who are so ignorant of the Bible that they have no idea how to employ this process of forgiveness. So, see, there's ignorance And there's wisdom in both realms. Yet, let me read to you what is to be done. Matthew 5, starting at verse uh, 43, reads this. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So see, God's mercy is so liberal that we, his children, must exercise that same liberality. We hold one another accountable to this process. As Christians. And if people do not honor it, you turn to the escalation procedures. You take another brother with you. 
You walk through the offense. You see how to make this right. If your brother decides for you, saying, yes, you're offended, why won't you repent? And they still refuse to. You take others. It comes before the church. The elders may boot you out because you're not behaving like a Christian. Yet, none of that process applies to unbelievers. Instead, grace, grace, grace. Mercy, mercy, mercy. So, there is another one too that I'll cover actually in a bit. But now we're moving to the fourth point finally. Closing thoughts on forgiveness. First, there is, there is underlying the reality of forgiveness a deep, deep sense of this is not right. This is not just. And it's true. Forgiveness, because of that, is inherently supernatural. There is a phrase that you are all familiar with, to err is human, to forgive, divine. This is from a poem written by an English poet by the name of Alexander Pope. He wrote that poem in 1711. And I believe there is far more truth to that statement than most of us realize. To err is human, to forgive, divine. In a little comment on this poem that Pope wrote, he wrote this. We should aspire to do as God does. Show mercy and forgive sinners. When we've been sinned against, when this has happened to us, we are this person. We have experienced an injustice. This person has committed an injustice. And as moral beings made in the image of God, our hearts cry out for justice. We don't want to see injustice. And as fallen beings, because the injustice was perpetrated against us, we especially want to see justice. <clears throat> How is injustice addressed by God? Think about that for a second. How does God address injustice? Some things can't be undone. That cannot be undone. It's been done. It ought not to have been done, but it's been done. God addresses injustice with vengeance. Let me read Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So God will bring every injustice to light. The series that Pastor Kaiser has gone through in recent weeks, speaking of heaven, speaking of what will come, and especially that one a few weeks ago about the final judgment where 
all of our lives will be an open book and every sin we've committed will be revealed to us and to those that we've committed the sins against. I mean, this is remarkable. Our mind is boggled by this. We think, how can that possibly be? Why? What's the benefit of this? I mean, it makes you cringe to think about that. And this is in the hereafter. This is in heaven. Why am I to dread my arrival in heaven in this day of justice and judgment? Because God wants you to dread that day. Because beyond that day, it's all gone. But that day, that day, you're reminded of what you're saved from. That day you're reminded. Of just how evil you are. The first thing God does when we get to heaven is pretty much prove to us that none of us deserves to be there. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yet that's the reality. We saw this preached. It's true. As much as you might not want to see it, you see it. God's going to do it. God believes in vengeance. He will exact vengeance on every sin, every injustice that is not covered by the blood of Christ. Every one of them. Isaiah 35, 4. Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Last week, in the communion meditation from Habakkuk, Habakkuk was complaining to God about the injustice in the land of Judea. And what did God say? I am going to bring my vengeance upon this land. The Chaldeans are going to come here and conquer this land. There is going to be such tragedy, and it's coming. Because God himself was becoming fed up with the injustice of the Judean people. Now, we know the God of the Old Testament is a God of vengeance, a God of wrath. Everybody knows this. Everybody in the whole world knows this. What they want to forget, though, is that the God of the New Testament is that same God. Listen to this from 2 Thessalonians 1. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what awaits unbelievers. Vengeance. The sword in the hand of Christ being leveled against all of his enemies throughout this earth, throughout all time. Yet it need not be so. We know this. God's grace is extended to everyone. We are ministers of that. We reach out to people with the gospel and they scoff. Forgiveness is unusual. Forgiveness is a Christian thing. Don't think that the other religions of the world practice forgiveness like Christianity. 
Forgiveness is practiced among Muslims in Islam. You know what they say about unbelievers, though? Off with their heads. Whereas I read to you from Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus advocates. Mercy, peace, toleration of those that abuse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. So now, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. What does it take to rebuke your brother? What does it take to do this? To do it at all takes courage. To do it well takes compassion and tact. We've all done it badly. We've all done this badly. And yet, I would pray that all of you begin thinking about doing it well. This is the only reason for delay in bringing that rebuke, is get your heart right first. Because when you do this, you're ready to do that. You bring forgiveness as a gift in your hand when you do this. Forgiveness is there ready to envelop that offender with. What does it take to repent when rebuked? You're rebuked, and the person repents. What does that take? Maturity, humility. You have to own your sin. You have to own it in ways that many, many people in this world do not own anything. They cast off. It's always someone else's fault. It's not my fault. It's that person's fault or that person's fault. It's my mother's fault. It's anybody's fault but mine. So it takes you to be mature and to own your sin and to be humble about repenting. Now, what does it take to forgive them? It takes love, that supernatural love. That love is not of this world. You won't find that love in other religions of this world. That religion, it's all of this world. Christianity is not of this world. It's of another world. That supernatural love has penetrated into this world. That is the love from which we draw when we forgive. Psalm 86.5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. See, God himself is always ready with forgiveness for those that turn to him. He's always ready to hand it to you. We sometimes have hard hearts, but God does not. God is always ready to forgive, and he wants us to be like him in that. No one deserves forgiveness. No one does. Forgiveness is an affront to justice. Forgiveness displaces the need of vengeance. That's true. But see, that's because it's already been paid under the blood of Christ. Forgiveness is rooted in divine love that does not exist on this earth. It's in heaven. But forgiving others is what God expects of us. We are his children. We're to do this in obedience to him and his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Your 14 words are so simple to walk through, to memorize, to apply hand gestures to. And yet, Lord, uh, we know that because of the fall, because of our hard hearts, because of our pride and our refusal to admit culpability in this world, we know that it's hard to implement. 
our sense of justice, whether we are, are the offender or the offended party, uh, neither person is entirely at peace and comfortable with this process. And so I pray, Lord, that these 14 words would apply in our church, that we would hold ourselves accountable and one another accountable to enforcing them, to living by them. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit to convict us of sin and to draw us into living better lives, living out your word as you want it to be done. We ask you now, Lord, to be with us, to awaken in us a desire to live for you, to be truly your children, your advocates on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.